Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strink. On this podcast, I speak with interesting people in pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic medicine. Today, we're going to continue our look at coaching in medicine with a panel discussion. My guests are Dr. Jennifer Hunt, Dr. Ursula Lang, and Dr. Tanji. Each one is a pathologist and a coach, and we're going to look at how each of them got into coaching, the difference between coaching and therapy, and then we'll look at the process of coaching and some areas of mental health that might apply. All right, here are Dr. Hunt, Dr. Lang, and Dr. Tanji. Thank you all for being here. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having us. We're excited. So I wanted to start with if we could just each each of you kind of talk about how you became, because you're all pathologists, how, how you became interested in coaching and who or what influenced you to go down that path. So we'll start uh, with Dr. Hunt. Absolutely. Thanks. I would say that I've been interested in coaching for a very long time, okay. uh, mostly because I've had coaches and knew about coaching much earlier than most of my colleagues and friends, just fortuitously. Uh, mostly because at the Cleveland Clinic where I worked years ago, they had a coaching program and they had coaches that were available to physicians. And just by luck, I happened into that and got firsthand experience with how powerful and wonderful it could be to have a coach. Okay. And I've always had it in my mind. It's always been in the back of my mind, um, thinking about coaching and how how I a lot of what I do in my career has been centered around mentoring and and developing other people. And coaching um, seemed like the next logical step from that. So a couple of years ago, I started looking into what it would take to become a coach. And I don't know, I think I made the decision in about five hours and said, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to do it. I'm going to become a coach. And went through the training programs and the certification process right there on the spot, you know, did the, the months and months of work to become a coach. Have not looked back since. Okay. It kind of sounds like the experience of being coached kind of led you to becoming a coach. Is that does that sound about right? Absolutely, yeah, that's absolutely right. Being a co- being coached showed me the power of coaching, which made me want to be part of that power. Got other it. people. Okay, okay, that makes sense. Uh, Doctor Lang, how about you? So I, it's a little bit similar to what Doctor Hunt was saying, in the sense that I was. I had a coach. I was getting coached for maybe around five years now that I first started getting coached. And initially, I um, came across it just through a podcast. Katrina Ubel, she's another physician coach, specifically centered around weight loss for busy physicians. So I had you know some baby weight, and you know it's like this seems really practical. Other friends I had been. And noticing they had an amazing shift in like how much they were able to lose. And I thought, well, this seems like it's working. Maybe I don't have to go to the gym every day and I can just do coaching. Let's see what that's about. So I got into it from just that very practical point of view and then realized it actually was leaking over to my relationships, my career, like my ability to be a little bit more um, efficient in my work. So Seeing that also just, even besides the, the weight loss, that actually became a very secondary, trivial part of the whole thing in the end. <laughs> really, the, the amount of the productivity and the 
I would say just less cluttered in my mind in the end of the day meant that I had more energy at the end of my day. I wasn't running around in my head as much as I, as I was before coaching. So I quietly, secretly, even (laughs) I didn't tell anybody I had a coach. I was just doing it myself. And where I decided to become a coach was really centered around when George Floyd's murder happened. I really just saw a lot of suffering, um, a lot of need for, for mind management, basically, Um, you know, and, and from there, I also am a physician scientist and also found that this particular group of people who I interact with also were um, having a lot of scarcity thoughts, a lot of stuff that could benefit from coaching, basically. And I decided this was something I wanted to bring to my particular group of people. Okay. You said that the coaching kind of leaked into or leaked over into your relationships. What do you mean by that? Well, I think when thinking about my relationships with just about anybody, but like my husband, for example, one of the central principles that the type of coaching I do is really taking full ownership of your feelings and your thoughts and, and not relying on somebody else to make you feel happy. And so that shift, which took a while for me to continue practicing thought work when I finally was able to start practicing that not looking for somebody else to make me happy, but realizing that power was in myself. It was just a huge like burden lifted off of the relationship. Okay, that makes sense. All right, uh, D- Dr. Tanji, how about you? Yeah, so I was that person who felt like medicine was going to solve all my problems and make me a worthy person and make my parents really happy and make the world love me. And I also had like my own sense of purpose around it. I, be, I remember like in college, just feeling like I was going to save the world. Like I was going to go be a doctor and have all of this impact in the world. And between that time and when I finished residency and fellowship, I was like, where did all of that go? So what actually took me into coaching or led me into coaching was this sense of um, dissatisfaction I had like with my life and with my career. And that coupled with just how exhausting medicine can be if you don't know how to navigate it, if you don't know how to navigate um, your own expectations of career and things of that nature. So I started just kind of having like this sense of um, guilt and shame um, about wanting to explore non-traditional ways to practice medicine or actually wanting to be both successful and happy because, you know, I don't know if I'm the only one, but (laughs) I was like under this impression that you can either be successful or you could be happy, but it's really selfish of you to want to experience both. And I was really struggling with that. And that's actually what led me into coaching. Okay. So we were talking a little bit about this before we started recording. And it seems like coaching in medicine has become, it seems like it become more popular recently, at least within the last few years. I want to get into like, why is, why does it seem like now is there's a need for coaching where maybe there wasn't before or was there the need before and it just wasn't recognized at the time? 
I think the need was always there. I think maybe um, the culture wasn't as open to it. Coaching's been around for forever. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of other careers have taken advantage of the presence of coaching and the opportunity to get coached. I think maybe physicians in the C-suite, so to speak, have also always utilized coaching. But for everybody else, it seems like a new thing, but it's not necessarily a new thing. And I think just as time passes and the culture changes, that maybe we as doctors are way more open to coaching. And many of us want the success and the happiness. And one of the ways to get that is through coaching. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with all of that. That's always been there. I think perhaps more recently because of, you know, burnout and some of these other variables, uh, anybody who's just barely holding things together when there's something that happens outside that can just put things over the edge and sort of either leaving medicine or figuring out a way to make this work through coaching has been one thing that I've seen more recently. I I have a little bit of a different coaching practice. So I have a little bit of a different take on the answer to that. I'm coaching mostly women who are leaders in medicine and who really aren't experiencing burnout necessarily, or even the traumas of medicine right now, they're really looking to up their game. And I work mostly with people who are already spectacular leaders who are kind of in their element and wanting to become more powerful leaders all the way to people who are looking to become leaders and are currently not in leadership positions. But most of them are not coming at coaching with me anyway, from a place of Uh, from a low point. They're really coming at it from a high point. And so I think in my practice, what I, where I see coaching evolving and really exploding is in the leadership development arena. And I think it's become very powerful and popular in many ways, because we're starting to realize that there's a lot in the business world that can be sucked in and drawn into medicine really effectively. Maybe it's because there's a lot of business people in medicine who are telling us this, oh, you know, in my MBA program, I had great coaching. And, or maybe it's just that we're also recognizing the power of coaching for the first time in these leadership arenas in medicine as well. Okay. So you're saying like it's kind of carrying over from the business world into, into the medical world? Is that... That's what I see. I see okay. a lot of people recognizing the power from the business world and saying, hey, gee, those executives do really well with coaching. Uh, maybe that's going to help me with my leadership development. Okay. So then coaching then has a very broad sort of audience in that, you know, there's there's the people who are struggling and it can help them. But it, like you're saying, Dr. Hunt, they're, the people that are doing well, it can help them as 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 well to get to get even better. Yeah, actually in the business world, coaching is used almost I won't say exclusively, but it's much more used for people who are really excellent and who want to get better, not so much for people who are at a low point who want to get back to normal in the business world. In medicine, I do see it it being applied across many different um, areas and challenges for people in all points of life and in all points of their career. But I'd say in the, in the business spheres, 
coaching has been has been best utilized for um, you know that good to great model. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. I definitely um, see the coaching in kind of the C suite as being something that's already around for some time. And my husband has an MBA. You know, for him, when I told him about coaching, he's like, "Oh yeah, everyone has a coach. What's the big deal?" <laughs> it wasn't a new. It wasn't a new oh. thing, for sure. And I guess where I come at it with this kind of DEI kind of perspective is is part of that being equity. And why is it that the leaders that are already leaders are being provided these tools when they're so fundamental to the way that we approach problems, the way that we approach our training as residents, as new faculty, to kind of have a leg up before the burnout hits, you know, it's really preventative in my mind. So Okay. That's, I 100% hoping, agree. <laughs> yeah. I'm hoping it becomes more broadly available. To right, right. And this ties into this ties into something that you mentioned, Dr. Tanji, about there being kind of a culture shift as far as coaching being more accepted. Yes, uh, more accepted, more accessible. There are some, um, I'm in forensics, and so I've noticed even some, you know, we deal with not the not so pleasant parts of life (laughs) and afterlife, you know? And so um, there are several medical examiner's offices across the country who are instituting wellness programs that I believe one of them incorporates coaching in their wellness program. But I I see at least in forensics that wellness is start, there's like a little spark and I'm just hoping that there's enough wind on the flames to kind of like help it spread a little bit more. Sure. I mean, I, I can definitely see in, in forensic pathology, there's a, a psychological aspect to the work that you have to do. I could see how that would affect you know, anyone probably very quickly. How then, you know, because I, I work with residents also, and I can see the stress in them, you know, and you can see it in medical students and you can see it in all of these people. Should Should coaching be more I don't want to say like mandatory, but more available. I mean, like you said, Dr. Hunt, and you know, it's, it's in business, almost every executive has a coach. Should every medical student, should every resident, should that be available? You know, for, for years and years, we have developed mentoring programs and we've relied on mentoring to help trainees, junior faculty, uh, kind of along the path to success, and and mentoring's been the buzzword and the keyword, and it's great. I'm not. I, I have love mentoring. I've been doing it my whole career, and I've had wonderful mentors myself. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with mentoring, but I think mentoring um, it, it, it's limited in that you have to find somebody who has the the career path and the life that you want in order to get the best value from mentoring. And so everybody says, oh, how can I find a mentor? Will you be my mentor? I need a, I need a mentor. I need someone who's going to show me the way. And it's not practical because there's just not somebody like everybody. So it's hard to find a mentor who's really going to be that person to, to lead you along a path that's going to be just like theirs. Whereas coaching is much more widely applicable. Like you don't have to have a person to match you in a coach to be very effective. You can have someone who doesn't match you and it can be extremely effective. 
So in many ways, I think that coaching can be a more practical and easily applied tool to help people on their path when they're either medical students or residents. So yeah, I would love for every student, every every resident, every junior faculty member to have a coach uh, because it's actually a little bit easier to find coaches to match up with people than true mentors that have that that special spark that that are going to really be impactful to a person's career. I agree with that, Jennifer, especially because in some ways there can be inequalities even in the mentors that are available to you, which at times can have students who quote unquote don't have the the perceived best mentors who are willing to mentor them. However, I feel like if they were if they had coaches available to them, they really wouldn't feel like their potential was limited in any way or that their opportunities were limited in any way. So I think that's actually brilliant what you just said. Well, I don't know about brilliant, but thank you. (laughs) Yeah. I want to make a distinction between, because coaching, at least the things we've been talking about so far, a lot of it is, has to do with mental health. And so I want to make the distinction between coaching and a coach and a therapist the thing I want to get at is like, where's the line where coaching kind of ends and where you go, okay, you probably should be talking to a therapist instead. For me, it's when the problem starts to inhibit your like activities of daily functioning. If it is, we're all physicians, we know how to um, screen for depressive type tendencies. We, you know, know what PTSD and trauma type things um, look like. So like if you're a coach and you're starting to see that this particular client has things that are outside of your wheelhouse or that would be more suited for a licensed mental health professional, then um, I would suggest referring them that way. Okay. I'm a, uh, my coaching certification is with the International Coach Federation, which is one of the largest certifying agencies of coaching. And it, it, there's a lot in the programs around sort of the ethics around coaching versus uh, therapy. And, and really a lot of training goes into deciding in, a mo- in the moment, is this really coaching or is this straying into the therapeutic range? So it's really, really important for coaches to, to be very careful about not straying into therapy or counseling and staying really strictly on the coaching aspect. One of the things that I use to, to, to think about that is whether we're going to go backwards into the past or whether we're going to go forwards into the future. In therapy, a lot of the work goes backwards, and it goes back to childhood and to, to meaningful events that happened in the past. And in coaching, we spend a lot less time on the past. In fact, sometimes we spend no time on the past. And it's really about looking forward and creating actions and plans that are going to help the person be effective in their future. And so that's a really helpful distinction for me, whether a person is is looking to or needs to look backwards and really dive into that past and how it's affecting them or whether they're really ready and, and, and positioned to look forwards and start planning their actions 
for their future. That makes a lot of sense. That really uh, clarifies it for me. So therapy mostly looks backwards and coaching mostly looks forward. So, okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. Although I will say that a lot of therapists do a lot of coaching also. So therapists can do coaching. They can look forward. They can help people plan their actions. Uh-huh. But coaches should not stray into therapy. Okay. It, has there been a time maybe, I mean, obviously we're not going to get into any specifics, but where you've had a client that maybe they needed to see a therapist for a little while and then come back for more coaching once they've kind of resolved some of those issues? Absolutely. So I have, an, I've always had a number of clients who actually are either doing therapy and coaching concurrently or have graduated from therapy and are moving into coaching. And I've also had clients, or not clients, but people that I talked to who didn't become clients that I've said, you know, it, it really sounds like you, that you could um, use a more therapeutic approach and some counseling and therapy. And let's get back together when you're ready for coaching, because that would be a great avenue later on. And it usually works out really great. Most of the people I've worked with who are in therapy and want to start coaching, they're therapists are all in on that and they think it's a great idea. And so I always make sure that the person has cleared it with their therapist to work on coaching at the same time. And they almost always say, absolutely, they're so excited that I'm going to do coaching at the same time. Okay. Okay. Is that, is that a common thing for all of you that your coaching clients are also at the same time seeing a therapist? I have a few clients that um, have a therapist as well as me as their coach. Yeah. Okay. I want to say, kind of get into the the process of kind of taking in a new client. So if someone approaches you, um, however they do it, and then how do you go through like determining what, what their needs are? Do you expect them to come to you with that? Or do you, is, is there a process for that? Yes. Usually on um, the consultation call, um, I'm able to tease out. I am a, I usually do um, private one-on-one coaching and my packages are customized. So uh, my packages are developed um, based off of what we discuss in the consultation calls and their particular goals at that time. Okay. So it's it's like a series of questions or something like that? Yeah, we just sit down, we have a conversation about, you know, what's happening in your life, what you feel like the problem is, what you feel might be holding you back, where do you want to go, and how we bridge the gap in between. And so then um, the session built on um, bridging the gap and making the identity shift from where you are now to where you want to be. Okay. When someone books, yeah, so when someone books a, a consultation or a discovery call uh, with me, there, there's a just a simple question prompting, what is it that you want to focus on? And that gives me an idea of like what area in their life they, they want to be coached on. I do, um, for now anyways, just coach physician scientists. So that's something that I feel like with my time constraints, I have a, I do have a full-time job. I, I want to really kind of focus in on that particular group of people. Not that I would need that necessary, that background necessarily, but sometimes it helps to connect with someone who, who is, who is that person as well. And some of the things that I focus on a lot are just time management and, and sort of this balance between clinical duties and research duties. And how do we, 
put it on the calendar? How do we stay accountable to ourselves? How do we build that relationship with ourselves where we trust ourselves to follow through with what we plan to do for the day, for the week, for the year? And so very goal-oriented discussions. And sometimes you can pull out like just limiting beliefs about what they believe they can do. And based on what they think is possible and what we see around us, right? So the kind of example of a physician scientist, what is that supposed to look like? And really breaking free from those definitions and figuring it out for that unique person. How can we make this work for you, for your life, for your unique situation? And my hope is just to see more diversity, more women, more different ways of looking at what, how can we contribute to science, but also uh, balance clinical duties and, and family. So that's how okay. I do it. Okay. Isn't that interesting that we all have such different coaching practices and such different approaches? And yeah. I think that just shows the diversity in coaching styles and methodologies because my first calls are totally different from either of yours. So I usually spend a little tiny bit of time on the goals, but I have always just done a coaching session for my first call. And I do that for two reasons. Number one, that I want people to see how coaching will be with me in order to know whether we're a good fit. And I'm also checking them out. So I want to see if I'm, if I feel like I can serve them and if my style and my expertise and what I bring to the table as a coach will be useful to them, um, for them as well. So it's, it's an interview, right? In a way, it's a live interview. We're practicing and we're seeing if coaching together is going to be, um, awesome. And when it's awesome, it's awesome. And it's, I have to say, rarely do I have experiences where I'm like, yeah, that's just not a great fit. Most of the time, it just feels great. and It's just great to have a, a coaching session with people and looking for that, um, that insight. And it's funny, again, because Ursula talks about time management as one of her main things. And I hardly ever do time management coaching. The work that I do with, with the people I end up working with usually is much more around um, how they show up as leaders how they want to show up as leaders, getting the best out of everyone around them and themselves. And it's rarely about kind of the structural and logistical things of, of, like you said, balancing life and work. And I think it's we all have sort of very unique uh, tailored practices in many ways. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's part of the reason why I wanted to do this, this panel discussion, just to explore the different uh, techniques and practices. So that's, that's, that is interesting. I'm curious though, like when you've got a client that you realize that, okay, this is kind of outside of my sphere or my, my abilities or specialty. What do you, what do you do then? Refer them to coaches that you trust and you like, and you think might match. And I completely second Dr. Hunt's point about it being a personal fit. And I have experienced being coached by numerous and numerous coaches. And they're just some that I just prefer their personality, their style, it just clicks. And so if it doesn't work with me, I'm, there's absolutely no, no issue there. It's a matter of, you know, what is the best fit for them. And sometimes I'll ask my peer coaches to, to have a, a peer coaching session just to see what their style is like. Would I refer somebody to them 
And sometimes they're just friends of mine who come to me and want to be coached, but they don't necessarily want to be coached by me. And so I'm happy to to also just have a circle of of peer coaches where I can refer. Uh, is there any kind of competition in in a, in a circle like that as far as who wants to be the most popular or the best or s- something like that? The, Not the on good my news end. Is, <laughs> okay. Yeah. And and the good news is that I, at least in my practice, my coaching is completely and a hundred percent confidential. So nobody knows that I've coached somebody and nobody knows that people have reached out to me. I never share that information with anybody ever, 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 even with permission, I wouldn't do it. And so there really isn't any competition because nobody knows. Right. Okay. I also think that just leads to, you know, there's more abundant mindset. Yes. Abundance, right? And that's what we coach on as well. That's like a a healthy space, mind space to be in that, um, that, you know, there's enough to go around. And we're here to help. We're here in service too. Yeah, I think in the, uh, especially like in the group of physician coaches that I know, there's more of a desire to help other physicians in particular than it is to, than there is for greed and being the best and being the only person that people come to, you know, in the, in the circles that I'm in, everybody is just like, you know, what can I do to help Uh people? Okay. All right. Let's get back to the, the process of it a little bit. Like, so did you come up with a sort of a set of goals and then work on those with the client? Is that, is that how it works? Yeah. My packages are either for three months or six months. I let the client decide. Okay. And um, once again, for me, it's purely customized to what the client is struggling with or what the client wants help with. I could come up with just a set program and be like, okay, week one, we're going to do this. Week two, we're going to do this. But if it's not relevant to their own personal growth, then it's not really going to be as effective. So I think I'm kind of more of a relaxed. I think I'm more relaxed in that area and I'm um, very flexible when it comes to each individual client and um, helping them along their path. So it's customized to the client. It isn't just sort of a, this is the program and this is what you do. Correct. Right. Okay. In general, um, especially according to all of the, most of the coach training programs, um, needs to be client-led. So it really needs to be driven by the client's desires and the client's wishes and the client's goals. So once we've elicited the goals with the client and that, I mean, sometimes they don't have a really clear idea of their goals. And so it has to be some work even to get to the goals. Sure. And we okay. don't create the goals for them. They, they, they create their own goals. We're just kind of their guide where I call it the walk along, talk along partner. We're there listening, probing, questioning, pushing, sometimes pushing a little bit, uh, but they pick their goals and they even pick how the sessions evolve. So sometimes a client comes with, you know, we're working on overarching goals for a period of time, but there's a, there's something acute that's happening. There's something in their lives that needs to be put on the table that day. And, you know, we move off of the goal. We move away from the goal because that is what they want and they need in that particular day and in that particular session. The important thing is it's always, always, always client led. The coach never leads 
with what they want. It always comes from what the coachee or the client is looking for and wants. I 100% second that. Um, One of my little taglines that I like to say, we're investigating your mind. And perhaps as a physician scientist, that resonates where we really are just being very curious about what we're deciding to think and our experience of the world really just comes down to that. What your thoughts are, what are you deciding to think? What are we deciding to think about this challenge in your life right now that you want to solve? What are your thoughts about it? And let's investigate the thoughts. Let's figure out how those thoughts are creating your results. And now once we know the playing field, we now have the power to change it. So yeah, I, I think that having a tangible goal is really useful because you can kind of check in to see how that's going. But really the goal doesn't matter as much as the process because the process you can apply. And like I mentioned before, my original goal is weight loss. And I found the process itself just applied to every part of my life. So sometimes having like you can like a goal to show for it is very helpful, but I don't think it really is even necessary. It's about giving the power to the client to be even able to take the work outside the sessions and apply it to their lives on their own, having the tools. Okay. So you're sort of teaching them how to, how to do it themselves. Then you're, you're giving them the tools to then do it, do it themselves. Okay. So then what, what happens then if you've got the goals and you, and you reach the goals or you teach them the process to do it themselves, then is that the end or what happens then? Do you ever go to the gym and then decide that that's the end of it? We fix it. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, to me, it's just, I coach, I do my own self-coaching every single day. Uh-huh. And I know when I'm not doing it because things pop up in my life where I'm like, wait a minute, you know, my mind is not being managed right now. I need to get back to doing the daily work. So I think part of it is teaching them, giving them the power to do these these things themselves on a daily basis. But then you can also get to a point where you're you don't know what you don't know. And so it's about showing them their mind. Where where's the blind spot? What am I missing here? Why am I why do I feel stuck? And so sometimes people will go through uh, clients will go through a set, you know, six week to eight week or whatever program, have the tools, and then when they feel like they need some more there's the ability to come back and get more sessions. And I think coaching is about empowerment and potential, right? So if somebody comes to you, you know, at a lower point, as Dr. Hunt had mentioned earlier, maybe your initial sessions are all about empowerment and teaching them how to kind of like, live in their power, how to um, navigate where they are so that they can get to the place where they want to be. And then after that, then they might move into what I call potential, right? So like they can't even see like the the unlimited potential they have for their lives if they're in a place of feeling disempowered or feeling burnt out, as you had mentioned before, or exhausted and overwhelmed. You can't even see those things, right? And so initially, coaching might just be focused on the empowerment part. But then once you get there, a whole new world will open up for you and you can begin to explore those things if you want to. I have had clients who met their goals really fast. In fact, I had one person that I worked with 
who had one coaching session. And oh, wow. we had a really powerful coaching session. And then this was a this was somebody um, internal to one of my institutions. And that person came back for a follow-up, you know, a couple of weeks later, and she's like, I'm done. I'm good. No, it's perfect. Everything's fixed. And I was like, wow, now that is the success of coaching. That's not the usual. The usual is that it's a process that unfolds over time. There's a give and take, there's a back and forth, there's an ebb and flow. Uh, but but we do want people to meet their goals. And so we're always aiming for the goals that they've defined. And we do want there to be an end point where you, you get somewhere and you arrive and the actions have been taken and there's success metrics to, to be associated with that. Sometimes there are new goals and all of a sudden you've reached a new plat- a new pinnacle and the person says, oh, well, yeah, I'm here, but oh, by the way, now I want to do this. And there's more coaching to be done around new goals. Other times it's, it's, it's just a, a time to reflect and there's a, a nice break where you can just kind of reflect and, and get back to normal and sort of let all those new patterns and those new processes settle in and get used to them. And the coaching can kind of be finished up with this, this new end in sight and this, this new kind of pattern for life. Okay. I wanted to get into a couple of, I picked out a couple of kind of mental health topics that I think have a lot of people have been talking about recently. And the first one then, and I think we've already already mentioned this one a couple of times, but it's burnout. And I hear a lot about it, a lot about this. And like I said, I, you know, I see it in residents and in medical students as well. And I, I think a couple of you specialize actually in this one. So can we, Talk about what is what is burnout, and then how, as a coach, uh, how do you identify that, and then what do you do with it? So, burnout is the chronic um, exhaustion and overwhelm that comes from essentially chronic job stress. And when I started coaching, I did um, specialize a lot in burnout, and what I discovered. Along with burnout, there's this other entity called success exhaustion, um, which is pretty much based on kind of like that same sense of overwhelm and exhaustion, but it stems from actually um, basing your life on external validation. So there are like two separate things, but what I look for is whether or not that feeling of overwhelm and exhaustion is actually coming, because medicine is demanding, you know, and... um, depending on what specialty you're in, (laughs) it can be more or less demanding. And, you know, in my specialty, we, you know, you, some, some people see more trauma than other people. Right. And I think a lot of, a lot of those factors do lead to actual burnout and some of the symptoms are um, cynicism and detachment from the job, detachment from the people around you, your family, you know, friends and, kind of like this sense of like self-deprecation. So when I see those things, I tend to feel like some of that is burnout. Um, But I think a lot of people also kind of have this sense of exhaustion and overwhelm because they've kind of lost their sense of purpose and 
authenticity and um, empowerment in the field of medicine um, because we've gone through a very stringent stringent training practice that is typically pretty like there are very clear lines of where you fit into the box. And I think that uh, a lot of our, our ideals that we had before going into medicine, we're not able to embrace them until years after we finish training. So I think there's a very fine line and they can kind of cross a lot of the times, but I think coaching can be very um, effective at teasing out um, exactly what the problem is that's leading to those feelings of burnout for each individual. You're describing the symptoms of burnout and it, a lot of that sounds a lot like depression. So what is, what is the difference between the two? So depression, at least when I was, <laughs> I had my best friend and roommate in met, uh, residency and uh, fellowship was a psychiatrist. <laughs> oh, so, <okay. laughs> so, so yeah, so depression, I guess the technical definition, I don't all the way quite remember from medical school, but it was like greater than six weeks of feeling like hopeless and okay. um, things of that nature. And so I'm not a psychiatrist, so I don't diagnose depression. But if I'm um, speaking with somebody and they mention that they're depressed and hopeless and things of that nature, I absolutely will refer them out to a, um, a mental health professional just so that they can make sure that that it's not a clinical depression. And then um, once they have, um, you know, been cleared of that and are ready to focus on coaching, then that's when I work with them. Yes. So I think then the main, the main idea then with burnout is just, first of all, that it's very common. A lot of people feel this and, and that, and that's okay. Is that kind of where we start? Like it's, you just accept the fact that it's okay to feel that way. And then you work from there. It is okay to feel that way. I think where coaching comes in very handy, um, especially one of the tools um, I use is around um, mind management and not reframing in the sense that like what you're thinking is wrong, but just like if you can reframe how you think about a lot of things, if you can focus on the things that you can actually control instead of fighting mm-hmm. a, against the system that you have absolutely no control over, like that leads to a lot of the exhaustion. <laughs> it's right. like you're fighting against something that's not going to change anytime soon. So if we can just kind of direct our focus into the things that we actually can control, that eases a lot of the symptoms of burnout that people feel like it's almost, it's like a magic trick. <laughs> like it's, it's like abracadabra, you're healed, <laughs> but not really. I'm being very facetious right now. <laughs> okay. I, I completely agree with the part of it being that we have a limited amount of energy in a day. And if we're spending 30 to 40 to 50% of our energy fighting the reality of the system, which we practice in, then that is where we're deciding to put that energy without realizing we're deciding it, right? And so being very aware of like, where are we deciding to use up our thought energy um, Uh and kind of recognizing that by choosing to believe that things should be differently, that that is is where we're expending that. Uh, The other thing that I think goes in, into play with with one of the tools uh, with coaching is kind of uh, teaching about boundaries and, and just and like not you don't actually have to always say yes you don't have to do 
really anything. We get, we choose to do the things that we do and recognizing where we can say yes, where we can put boundaries around ourselves and having that conversation and opening up the creative part of how can our job work with us and not against us and not um, vilifying our job and et cetera. So. Mm -hmm. I think the, the the boundary thing, isn't that kind of, at least at first, that's a little bit difficult to do, you know, especially if you're, say, early in your career, learning that you can say no to things and it won't affect your, you know, your progression throughout your career. Is it, would that be difficult at, at first? Well, I think it's taking ownership of the the choice. If we choose to say yes to it, we're choosing to put something on our calendar that's going to take time away from whatever other thing we want to do with our life and owning the choice. Nobody's making us do it to get ahead. We can decide to not do it. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think that there is that trade-off. We decided to do residency and we we suck up the, the hours and we kind of, we do it because we, we want the end result, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> we want the, we want the chance to be an attending. Right. So dropping the story that we tell ourselves between deciding to do it and getting that end result, we can choose to resist it the whole time, or we can actually decide, I made that decision. I knew like, this is what it entails. And let's use our mental energy on getting our work done and not thinking how horrible this is. This isn't right. I shouldn't be. I shouldn't be. And so not to say it's easy. It's right. Not, it's not easy. All right, then the other topic that I wanted to look at was or is imposter syndrome. And I know I know I know I've felt this. I still feel this from time to time. And I know probably everyone throughout their career has as, as well, at least most of us. And from what I've heard the especially the kind of the high achievers are the ones that feel this the most, at least at least from what I read. So let then let's let's define this one then. What is what is imposter syndrome? And then we'll get into kind of what 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 can we do about that? Well, I guess I'll start because that is one of my most that's one of the areas that I'm most interested in in coaching right. and also in life, working with uh, faculty, etc. Okay. So imposter syndrome has been imposter syndrome's been around forever, but it's been recognized since the 1970s when it was first named. And the definition, uh, the classic definition was that it was the feeling of being a fake or a fraud. I actually don't use that definition. I use a slightly different definition. And that is, it's the experience and feelings of not recognizing your own value and your own talents and your own skills as much as the outside world does. So in other words, other people think you're awesome and you don't feel awesome. So it's a disconnect or at least a at least a uh, misconnect between what the outside world thinks of you and what you think of yourself on the inside. But I also believe that it's not just enough to think those things. It's true, true imposter syndrome as it plays out and it lives out in people's lives is also when those thoughts and those misperceptions about yourself result in you acting differently. So you make different choices, you make different decisions, your behaviors are different based on this undervaluing of your own skills and talents. And that's the definition that I use most commonly for imposter syndrome. 
I agree with that. And then also what I've noticed too, is that a lot of times when people are dealing with imposter syndrome, there's this underlying current of being in a place that you don't really feel worthy of being. And so a lot of um, the work um, I find myself doing with people who are dealing with imposter syndrome is around really like self-worth and for lack of a better term, like owning your power. I don't want to sound like Tony Robbins or anything, but, but essentially that. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree with that. Yeah. In fact, I've been trying to get people to change the name of imposter syndrome, but I haven't really gotten this to stick probably because it doesn't exactly roll off the tongue very well. But I I think of it as what I call it is self underappreciation syndrome. And it's really the actions associated with underappreciating yourself. Yeah, I, I think an important point there is, look, Dr. Tanji, you mentioned feel, feeling worthy. And I think that's important. Like, if you're there, if you're, you know, in that residency, if you're in that fellowship, you know, you got there because you are worthy to be there. Exactly. You've earned it. You've done all the work. You've taken all the ACTs, MCATs, <laughs> steps, uh, shelf exams, <laughs> right? <laughs> like whatever. You've jumped through all of the hoops and you are there because, well, you've proven that you can jump through those hoops. And essentially, I guess the, the, the big point I want people to, to see too is that like before you jump through the hoops, and after you jump through the hoops, you're just as worthy both times because self-worth is something that's very inherent and you can't really do anything to add to it or take away from it. It's just kind of like nobody will look at a newborn baby and be like, uh, you don't deserve to be here. You know, <laughs> stop breastfeeding. You haven't earned that milk. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's just kind of like, <laughs> it's like, you know, um, but somewhere along the way, you know, as we grow and, you know, have more time here, we pick up these beliefs and um, we adopt these beliefs that we have to be better than we are or earn something or work really, 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 really hard to be like deemed worthy and approved of. And so I think a lot of people struggle with that um, because it's not, you know, the school system isn't really set up to affirm our worthiness to us um, every day. I didn't go to a school like that, <laughs> you know, and then like if you don't have parents, you know, who intentionally, you know, explain this type of stuff to you all along your life, like you just got to have to figure it out, you know, for yourself, you know, you happen to come across, you know, something that helps you kind of realize that inherent self-worth, but it's not necessarily taught to us intentionally. One of the fun things that I do with people around self-worth is to ask them to imagine themselves sitting in one of those vacuum jars with nothing around them and just standing in there with nothing, 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 nothing around them. No people, no nothing, no external metrics, nothing, just you. And then talk about your value and what you are good at and what your skills are and what your competencies are. And recognize that in a vacuum, most people recognize their self-worth. They, they feel worthy. They, they recognize their skills and talents, and they can tell you what they are. But the minute we put comparisons around them, 
then they feel unworthy because it's not actually the inside part. It's the comparison to the outside world that brings on that self, that unworthy feeling or the self underappreciation. So it's, it's a nice way to get back to the very foundation and the very basics of what self-worth means. It means your value in isolation, not comparing it to anybody else, but just to you. And to take away all the comparisons helps to illustrate that it's the comparisons that really draw the person down into this self-underappreciation. I think to kind of piggyback on that, the comparison thing, I think it's in particular harder when you're the only one in the room that looks different. And so bringing it back to this diversity um, you know, component that really drove me becoming a coach was to to basically, you know, have that empowerment that your voice, because it's different, because it's unique, is that much more important to to speak. That we, of course, are 100% worthy, regardless of anything we're doing. But, but that, you know, kind of validating that you being different and unique, it, it means that much more to speak, to be heard. And so sometimes that, you know, comes down to that comparison. We, you know, we don't think the same. We don't look the same from those around us. And that's not going to change until those who do look different or say different things speak up and, and feel empowered. Those are a lot of good, a uh, lot of good thoughts on that one. That's interesting. Okay. So if someone is interested in coaching, and I know that uh, a couple of you, couple of you have podcasts, uh, books and things like that, is that a good way for someone to maybe kind of, kind of dip their toe in the water and check it out? Or is there, are there, are there other better ways to, to do that? What, what, what should someone do? Definitely. Um, my podcast, I, it's my free resource to offer people really impactful, effective tools of coaching, even though they're not my clients. Right. So I think my podcast is um, really valuable in um, helping people shift their mindsets around work, around life. And um, it's called the Wealthy Happy Soul Podcast. So for me, if people are interested in my work, they can listen to that podcast on iTunes or anywhere. Um, They, you know, listen to podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. I'll provide a link in the show notes for that as well. For me, I'm very early in my coaching practice, but if they're curious about my program, it's called Mudfud Mind Project. And and that's not that you have to be a a Mudfud or an MD-PhD to to be coached by me. But, you know, as I said, I target people who have both clinical and research responsibilities. Uh, And then the podcast is coming soon. Right. Okay. Okay. I have a book on imposter syndrome that's full of coaching tools, so yeah. easily accessible. And they're not just a, uh, coaching tools that work for imposter syndrome. And that book's on Amazon, so it's very easy to find and very easy to download. And if people are interested in coaching with me, um, you just find me online and send me an email and uh, set up a time to, to touch base. And I promise you, I will never have a podcast. Period. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> All right. I uh, like I like listening to other people's podcasts. Okay, I can appreciate that. Thank you all very much for being here. Uh, this was this was really interesting, and I hope the I, I'm, I'm sure the audience will get something out out of this as well. So th- thank you all. 
right. Thank, Thank you for you. inviting. Thanks for having us. Take care. Big thanks to Dr. Tanji, Dr. Lang, and Dr. Hunt. And I also need to thank Dr. Christina Arnold, who was the one that introduced me to all three of them. I really learned a lot from this episode. I hope you did too. And if you are interested in coaching, definitely go to the show notes. I'll have links to where you can find them online. And while you're doing that, you can also follow this show on Twitter at People of Path, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. And if you like this episode and you know someone who might also be interested in coaching, please share this episode with them. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. Check out the link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to listen to some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People with Pathology podcast. When you're working in pathology and laboratory medicine, there's one thing you always need, good quality scrubs. Well, Dress a Med has been designing and manufacturing high-quality scrubs since 1980. The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out Dress a Med, and if you use my link in the show notes, you'll be helping to support the show.